Hello and welcome to another episode of Adventures in .NET. I'm Sean Klebo, your host, and with me today is the other co-host for today, Why Lou. Sean, how you doing? Hey, why? Good, good. Except for all the smoke that's outside. We were yeah. in hazardous conditions today, so it's really bad. So <laughs> We're in lockdown right now, actually. It's the first lockdown we've had. Well, the second lockdown we've had since COVID began, so it's getting used to not being able to go out. So. <laughs> Are they making any progresses with vaccinations in Australia? We are, but we're still pretty pretty slow. I think we're about, I think basically Sydney is going really bad, so they're fully pumping up the vaccination rates in Sydney. But um, yeah, Canberra basically had a case about two days ago, so everyone now we now like six cases. Yeah, we had we had one case, and now we're six cases. So we're um, in lockdown. Wow. Well, no one <laughs> no one's vaccinated. Well, you know our vaccination rates are so low here, so yeah, yeah. Uh, it's a little different than here. You know, we're I think we're about nationwide, I think we're about fifty percent vaccinated. You know, some some areas are a lot higher, some areas a lot lower. Yeah. But yeah, yeah, in some areas it's not going so well. We'll see how it does. Mm. All right. Let's bring on our guest. Welcome back, Jimmy Bogard. Hey, Jimmy. I know. Welcome back. Yes. <laughs> How are you? I'm good. I'm good. Great to be here. Yeah. We don't have we don't have smoke here in Texas. It's just you know suffocating heat. That's all we got. Yeah, we're gonna set a record this year for the most hundred degree days where I'm at up in northern Idaho. So we're gonna set that probably this weekend. And then we're dealing all with all the smoke from the wildfires from California, Oregon. Canada, all that kind of stuff. So yeah, it was, it was, don't go outside this morning. It was that kind of, <laughs> so what are you up to nowadays? Whatever the customer asked me to do, but it's, it's, it's always the same kind of thing. We've got old software we need replacing with that with new software. And then all the fun stuff that comes with that, of you know, new UIs, new, new infrastructure, new, new ways to deploy things and, and everything in between. So it's, it's always, always interesting. Yeah. When I went freelance, I was still only a few years into my development career. My first contract, I was paid 60 bucks an hour. Due to feedback from my friends, I raised it to 120 bucks an hour on the next contract. And due to the podcasts I was involved in and the screencasts I had made in the past, I started getting calls from people I'd never even heard of who wanted me to do development work for them because I had done that kind of work or talked about or demonstrated that kind of work in the videos and podcasts that I was making. Within a year, I was able to more than double my freelancing rates, and I had more work than I could handle. If you're thinking about freelancing or have a profitable but not busy or fulfilling freelance practice, let me show you how to do it in my Dev Heroes Accelerator. Dev Heroes aren't just people who devs admire. They're also people who deliver for clients who know, like, and trust them. Let me help you double your income and fill your slowdowns. You can learn more at devheroesaccelerator.com. So, um... I think what we want to kind of talk about today is observability and open telemetry in .NET 6. What's that mean? Yeah. Well, we'll do, let's do one of, the, one of these at a time here. So we'll look, observability first. This is a thing I, I wish I'd known about like 10 years ago and tried to, uh, tried to invent tools 10 years ago. And now these are mainly solved problems by different vendors and whatnot. So observability usually is defined as, as having these kind of three pillars of logging, tracing, and metrics. And it's a way for you to be able to, instead of like a passive way of, of being able to react to your system, say like you get alerts and now you have to go fix something, is be able to have more planned, kind of more planned things that you put into your system to be able to see what's going on at any point in time. So it's more of a sort of reactionary. It's the opposite of reactionary, which would be what's planned theory. <laughs> something like that. So, 
Yeah. Yeah. As we have fourth eye. There you go. And so most of the time, folks just think about uh, observing their system in terms of just you know logs, which you know just reams of data coming out of your system that someone checks every now and again, or something's broken, they have to you know comb through Splunk and look through you know millions of messages to see what's there, or metrics, which is still a you know could be a bit passive to say you know are we got some dashboard somewhere that says are we below or above our SLAs, whatever. But tracing is a big one that that I've recently has really gotten a lot of value for us. And so the other side is open telemetry. And open telemetry is a is an effort to try to standardize both the protocols for observability as well as the APIs for observability across all platforms that you could possibly care about. So the idea that is that if you're on Java, you have a standard logging API. If you're on Go, you have a standard tracing API and all sorts of all the different combinations of permutations. And the last part is being able to report that information. So not just the APIs and the code that you're writing, but also, you know, you need to you want to report your log somewhere, you want to report your traces somewhere. And so there's a set of standard APIs, the kind of collection side of things, so that you can easily, from your infrastructure code, be able to say, I want to report my logs to the 12 different log providers that are out there, and you're not necessarily pigeonholed to one specific one, or the infrastructure you depend on doesn't have to have 20 different packages for its different log providers. So basically, at some point, is, is a point that, you know, if you wanted to, if you were using App Insights, you should be able to just move to Dynatrace really easily or Google Analytics really easily type thing. Yeah, and a good another good example of that is, I don't know, so like most of the places I've been at, they just pick one of those and just they go with it. So they say, mm-hmm. you know, it's a corporate policy. They were, they were using Splunk as our log aggregator, whatever. So it's easy for us to, to I guess not easy, but you know, we could go look for all of the different applications we do and whatever and libraries we have and say, well, let's make sure that those things have some kind of Splunk exporter for their logs. So what OpenTelemetry is trying to do is say, instead of you, for every single kind of thing that could log something, that then it has to have different exporters for its kind of log. Why don't we, why don't we standardize the API around that so that your infrastructure libraries, whatever that could be. So you take EF Core, for example. So EF Core Instead of EF Core having like Splunk logging and App Insights logging and I don't know what <laughs> Blogstash logging, instead of having all these different plugins, they can just have one single plugin that says we are going to a common logging interface. And then that logging interface will have exporters to these other different things. So instead of having this kind of like matrix multiplication of infrastructure libraries and log syncs for where you're pushing the data, you, you unify that. So if y'all, I mean, have either of y'all used uh, Serialog or like Inlog or Log4Net? I, mean, I hope so, right? Well, I've, I've seen them. I, have, I haven't actually used them in a, in a project that I've worked on. So, Or another good example is uh, yeah. iLogger, like the, the Microsoft yeah. logging interface. Sure. So instead of, I guess, in the old days, we would define our own logger interface, and then we'd have to have exporters for those different, those different loggers. Every, every person that created their own log interface will then have to have their own log exporter for all the different ones. And it's just a lot to keep up with for all those different you know, combinations and permutations. So you know what Microsoft did was, so let's have a common logger interface that everyone logs to. So that when you and your application code, you don't log to log for net or in log or serial log, 
you log to this common interface that everything knows about. And then the secret sauce is then the configuration of the logging and the exporting logging. That's really what these other like, kind of logging providers put on top of that. So that's really what Open is trying, Telemetry is trying to do, is saying, instead of having these, these, all these different combinations and permutations of observability activities you want to do, times the number of places you want to be able to report the information to, if we could standardize on the APIs of when you record it and when you report it, then it greatly reduces the surface area of what folks need to support. So if I'm App Insights, if I just support like iLogger from Microsoft, then any any system, any application that can write to iLogger, those logs can go out to App Insights. Sounds like it's really trying to uh, take advantage or, or adhere to the substitution principle in, in solid design. So that's a good Exactly. Thing. So we look at like the Microsoft plan. And so we, we basically had that with iLogger. And so that's been around since, gosh, I guess .NET Core 1.0, maybe 1.1, I don't know. And so OpenTelemetry is saying, not just Microsoft stuff, Let's look at all these different platforms. So there's Java, Go, Node, Ruby, Python, PHP. Not all of those have this kind of monolithic company that's defining all these interfaces. Some of them have you know six or seven different interfaces for logging or whatever. And so OpenTillman just says, okay, let's come up with a standard. So we got six logging standards. We're going to have a new standard that standardizes that. So now we have seven standards. Hopefully it's just one. And they'll say, let's create one standard for those different interfaces so that your application code and your infrastructure code and maybe even your, like the libraries you depend on, those all write to some common interface that we can all agree upon. And then the, the interesting part isn't when you're logging, it's when you're reporting it out to some other external provider. That's what's kind of different between things. You can log to disk, you could log to streams, you can log to like standard outs or standard error, you could log out to you know, API somewhere else. That's the that's the interesting part, but your application code shouldn't care about those sort of things. It should just be like boring logging code. So while Microsoft like they came out with their own standard, OpenTelemetry is trying to kind of expand that and say you know, across all these different all these different platforms and frameworks, let's standardize around these pillars of logging metrics and tracing, those three things. So OpenTelemetry is not created by Microsoft. It is a like a open source kind of generic framework, I guess, being built. So is that can you use other like programming languages like Java or Yeah, exactly. So they're trying to define standards on both the kind of API level to say like you know, your log we're gonna define a logger.information. Well, that should look like this. It should take these kind of arguments, it should return mm. this, it should have this kind of behavior. And that looks different in different platforms and different frameworks and different languages, but to having you know kind of a common standard of the expectations around that API. So Microsoft, of course, was heavily involved in the .NET part of that, but it also you know incorporates a lot of different other platforms and a lot of different other you know, runtimes and frameworks and languages to try to standardize across that. And that's not to say that you I'm going to be able to use a JavaScript logging library in .NET. That's not the point. The point is to have like a, you know a common baseline across all of these different platforms. So you know the capabilities are the same, the behaviors the same, a lot of the interfaces are the same, but the details you know are going to be tailored per individual framework. Cool. Is it only for logging, or does it include things like metrics gathering and things like that? 
Yeah, so that's where things get kind of interesting is like other platforms and languages like maybe more ahead or behind in those different other pillars of observability, the tracing and metrics. It's mm-hmm. so like Microsoft has its own, had its own kind of distributed tracing solution. And this is in the system diagnostics API. Something I had like no experience in whatsoever until I was building kind of serious distributed systems. And I wanted to be able to have basically a stack trace across processes, across time, across networks. So that if I hit an API and that API talked to a database, talked to other APIs, maybe created a RabbitMQ message, and that message got handled by something else that didn't, didn't like, I want to be able to see that full picture of this initial trigger kicking off this long running activity or conversation behind the scenes. And so other folks and other platforms had solved this problem. So a good example is an application called, or an application this month stuff called Zipkin. Zipkin came out of, I believe, Twitter as something to help them solve the distributed tracing problem. So how do we, how do we trace a request across different machines, different web service calls, different API calls, and be able to basically be able to say like, well, what was the, what was a long pole in that tense? What was the thing that was taking, making this API call so slow? So you could look at log, log files, but you can look at log files with like a correlation ID to say, well, let's put a request ID in all of our log statements. But that doesn't tell you how long each request takes. You'll have to kind of glean that and kind of reverse engineer. Well, I, I see it took, here's the first instance of this correlation ID in this machine. Let me look for the last one, look at the timestamps and you know, subtract the two, and that'll give me the, the overall time. Tracing is trying to build a, a better model and picture around different activities, taking a specific amount, amount of time, and then kicking off other activities and other actions. So Microsoft had its kind of own way of doing that, and it plugged in really well with its tools. So like if you used App Insights, then you could kind of get distributed tracing and logging for free. It'll only work if you're on App Insights, but a lot of my customers aren't on Azure. And so I would have to have some other completely set of different tooling and infrastructure and library support to do, say, oh, I don't know, Grafana or Zipkin or Splunk has now distributed tracing as well. And so I just have to kind of cross my fingers and hope that whatever someone had built some kind of like EF core tracing capabilities. So that's like one example of you know, Microsoft having a great story for logging, but not really having a good cross-platform story for tracing. And so what they did with the Open Telemetry project was to basically track their their tracing tools with the Open Telemetry standard to to target it. So they weren't going to get rid of all of their existing tracing libraries. They were just going to move their tracing libraries towards open telemetry where with now with .NET 5 and .NET 6 they're basically in lockstep so as new standards and new APIs come out in open telemetry those are then like directly then supported in the .NET APIs as well so if there's somebody that hasn't done any any logging before they're not familiar with this they're kind of just wanting to to get into it is there anything special you have to do what do you have to know to get started with with doing this kind of tracing and and using open telemetry. So the the logging is kind of the easy part because what Microsoft decided to do with the logging is that since they have this existing logging API, more or less matched almost exactly what the open telemetry APIs are doing. So to do a quote like open telemetry logging support, it's it's already there. So you're good to go. 
So if you're using a .NET 5, .NET 6, or you know, all the way several versions back, if you're using an iLogger interface, then you've already know like why well, I, I in my application code, I use an iLogger to be able to log messages. And then my configuration code, I say where those log messages should go. It's like a default ASP.NET Core application that you create these days. It even has different logging exporters. So it can, whenever you hit F5 and you see stuff spit out on your console application or inside Visual Studio, those show up because they're just console exporters for the built-in iLogger interface. But if you want those log messages to go somewhere else, then you'll reference a specific exporter for iLogger. So there'll be some kind of like, I don't know, Azure App Insights.extensions.logging or Microsoft Extensions Logging App Insights to be able to say, let's go take those log messages and ship them out to App Insights. So you have to kind of decide you know, where those log messages should go. And then from that, you'll find some kind of NuGet package that will be able to marry up the iLogger interface with wherever those messages should go. Should there be any changes to any existing or legacy programs or would it just work immediately? Just have to import that NuGet package? That is a great question. So depending on how kind of legacy you want to get, before .NET Core, there was no real logging interface that Microsoft provided that was something kind of out of the box that all of its applications, you know, you do file new web application, that, that would not come with a logger. So you would have to decide to do a logger. So that mm-hmm. might have been log for nets or inlog or serialog. And none of those will necessarily support the open telemetry logging interface. So for those legacy applications, what I typically do is, you know, if they if they don't have a they don't have logging already, then I will just choose to pick the Microsoft logger. So even though we're talking about .NET 6, those open telemetry packages actually support all the way back to like full framework.net. So you could in your .NET 4.7.2 application, you could still use these open telemetry enabled libraries. Now, what may not be there are the libraries that you're using. So let's say you're using Entity Framework 6. Entity Framework 6 logging may not be plugged into this .NET Core open telemetry logging. So you may have to have a shim to be able to connect those two pieces. Whereas all the new .NET, basically from .NET 3.1 onwards, they used all of these standard, Microsoft was using all these standard APIs to be able to spit out telemetry information, whether it's logging or tracing or metrics, into these standard APIs so that eventually you could plug in something that was an exporter for those and it would just magically work. So like Entity Framework Core, for example, uses iLogger interface. Entity Framework Core also uses the distributed tracing activity API. So you just cut, you, you basically get this distributed tracing for free because they're using the standard APIs. Whereas the older frameworks may not be doing that directly. So for older frameworks and applications, you may have to shim whatever kind of observability things are available to you to be able to hook into those to be able to push that out into the open telemetry APIs. Yeah. So an adapter, something like that. Yeah, it shouldn't be too difficult to write because you know you're just trying to you know, translate from one interface to another. So it should be pretty sta- straightforward. It's definitely easier than writing the whole thing yourself, and it's also cheaper than like getting a call on Saturday night that the website is broken <laughs> and you can't tell what's going on. So you spend hours going through log files that are only available by SSHing to the 
production machine. So yeah, it's That's all never, never, never happened to me. Nope. <laughs> no, never, <laughs> never. Or remote desktop, RDP, whatever. One of those. Cool. Anything else we should know about open telemetry? Now the big one is so we talked about logging, which is basically a done tracing, which was is turned on by default in .NET five, and they've greatly improved it in .NET six to be able to one uh, better conform to the W3C standards. So if I have an API calling another API, and if you want to connect those two logs together, you have to have some some information that goes between those two systems to be able to connect those two uh, those two actions together. And so in .NET five, the W3C standard for correlating those two activities together is turned on by default. What's coming new in .NET 6 is more robust handling for those kinds of actions. So they kind of shimmed it in in .NET 3.1 and .NET 5. In .NET 6, it's like much more robust and replaceable. If, say, like you're already using another format that is standard, you could say, I'm going to replace this open telemetry standard with, say, the Zipkin standard, which is a different way of correlating between different actions. But the last big one is the metrics API. And so that's that's one of the big things they're pushing with .NET 6 is, is really expanding out on the metric side because although like logging was basically a solved problem and tracing was kind of halfway there, there really was no metrics API with any version of .NET, like almost at all. And so .NET 6, that's where they're really laying the groundwork for being able to have a standard way of reporting metrics. Like, I don't know, in the back of the day, I would do things like performance counters, event log messages. And if I wanted other, any other kind of metrics, I would have to say, well, what's reporting the metrics? Oh, it's Grafana. Oh, it's App Insights. Then I would write some specific App Insights code to be able to do that metrics. So with this upcoming version, they're trying to start start the starting the process of, of adopting the, the metrics API standard from OpenTelemetry so that you would just write some Microsoft library metric code in your infrastructure. And then your configuration would then say, where do I report this to? And that would be built by somebody else that, you know, you could just grab some someone else's package, you know, that's, you know, metrics.appinsights. And now all of your metrics that you wrote or that's already existing in whatever library that you're referring to would just get pushed out to what whatever metrics reporting software you're using. So tracing is tracing is kind of like what I see when I go into activity insights and it lets me say, see what this user has done in this session or what they did before this. So all that stuff is what tracing is going to let me do. Yeah, you kind of drill down. You say, well, here's the request they did. But if you're building a distributed system, you would want to know well, what other things did that, what, what other systems did they interact with with that one request? And so App Insights does let you kind of drill down to say, okay, well, this API call resulted in a call to the database. Okay, here's the, here's the query they actually made. Here's the time it took. Oh, they made another. They made an API call over here. Okay, here's the here's the request variables was, and here's the time that took. Oh, this that API call called another API. Well, to be able to humpty dumpty that back together again, that's distributed tracing. Cool. It is cool when it's all working. And about twelve or thirteen years ago, I had a we didn't have that, and I I had to build it all myself, and it took like six months of a whole engineering team to do. So I'm I'm super happy. You can just kind of reference a few libraries, and you get this like magical picture of how how all these pieces fit together and what actually happens behind the curtain when you make that request to the system from the front end and everything that happens from the back end. It's it's kind of magical when you see it all working. 
You make it sound so easy and simple, you know? I mean, it took a lot of people a lot of time to get it to work, but shoulders of giants and all that stuff, it's much easier now. <laughs> so what kind of other things have you been working on, Jimmy? Oh, let's see. Doing a lot of Angular stuff, but we don't care about that. That's boring. Mm-hmm. Authentication authorization with Azure AD, equally boring. I've also been doing a lot of like DDD stuff, of course, which is domain-driven design. So like a lot of my... A lot of the stuff I'm working with is very business-oriented software. And so domain-driven design is really heavily oriented towards that. A lot of DDD-based stuff, modeling and that sort of stuff. Do you want to just give us a recap on what is domain-driven design? Oh, my God. Even the book doesn't have a good definition. <laughs> of do- like it's, It says, what is domain-driven design? It's like been a whole chapter trying to explain it. Let me see if I can distill this down, though. Yes, uh, so so, domain so design, do it one D at a time. <laughs> oh god what's okay. the domain a domain is a constrained let's see what is domain i don't know if i can do it one word at a time so i'll try to explain <laughs> okay. it as, as one thing so domain driven design is is the idea that that we're building software that more closely aligns and models the business problems at hand and where we would see problems in the past where technical solutions diverge from the like the business terminology and the and the business problems. Domain-driven design is an idea that we we design our software systems to very closely align to the business problems at hand, which doesn't seem like very novel, I guess, or controversial. But I've, I've personally been involved in a lot of software systems and applications where there's a, a heavy set of translation between the software we read and the you know the language and problems of the business. So have you ever like had the thing where you know, like your your software like it says order, it says order, and the and the EF object the table is called order. When you talk to the business, they say invoice, and you talk to them and they say, yeah, we gotta you know approve this invoice, whatever. And then when you go back to your team, you're like, well, they said invoice, but what they really meant was order. And so just in terms of terminology. The idea is like instead of having these kind of this disconnect between the software we build and the business side is to really have a much more close collaboration and even our software realizing the model that the business is trying to trying to describe or, or attempting to describe so that those are much more one and the same. I'm sure Eric Evans could probably have a better description of that, but <laughs> mm-hmm. the idea is that we the software and systems we build are heavily aligned with the business problems at hand. Are you under increasing pressure to ship code faster than ever before? Then it's time to work smarter with Raygun's modern approach to error and performance monitoring. Raygun gives you instant visibility into the health of your software, and what makes it so unique is that it not only tells you when something's gone wrong, it shows you exactly where it's gone wrong and how to fix it, right down to the line of code. Made by developers for developers, Raygun has built a suite of monitoring tools that are used and loved by thousands of software teams every day. Monitor every corner of your tech stack with widespread language support and native integrations with GitHub, Jira, Slack, Bitbucket, Octopus Deploy, and more for even greater visibility. Visit Raygun.com to resolve issues faster and deliver flawless digital experiences for your users. That's Raygun.com to get started on your free 14-day trial with plans starting from as little as $4 per month. So you gave an example of an order. And so that's just kind of terminology there. So you know, how does that drive your design? Yeah, so I have to put this in contrast with like applications and systems I've seen in the past where the 
not just the the kind of code, but even the this the the UI and UX itself does not match the intent and behavior that, that the business is really wanting. So back in the day, I would do a lot of CRUD-based systems like create, read, read, update, delete. So very kind of primitive, boring kind of applications. And those are great for a lot of reasons, a lot of situations, but but kind of core business functions, it's it's much more complex. So take something like an, an order or an invoice. The business might use a term like, well, okay, we're going to have a an order processor approve an invoice. And so what do we see in our system? We see not an order processor, we see an order manager. And not an invoice, we see an order. And then we don't see the word approve, we see save. So, oh yeah, we just save the we save the order with a status of approved. But that doesn't represent the intent from the user that says, I, I'm approving an invoice. I'm not saving an order with a new status of approved. And so trying to make those more of the same where, and it's like the nouns and the verbs, but even the, the relationships and the model more closely align to the conceptual model of the business, the more of those align, then really the better the software we build will be aligned to what they actually want. Because we always have this thing like the, the business says we want X, we build Y, and then so the business then has to then translate our terms whenever they use the software because then they're like, oh, well, I know it just says save. What we're really doing here is we're approving an invoice. And so what they'll have is these like long wiki pages and printouts and post-it notes of like, here's how you should actually use the software to be able to enforce our business processes. So if we're doing domain-driven design, then the software should more closely realize and align to the information and processes that the business wants. It's a quick question, actually, maybe for everyone, and because this always happens to me, um, and I'm sure it happens to others as well. So very often, yeah, you do try to to have your your system, you know, your class, your classes, maybe classes and that stuff map to what the client terminology, but that can also change as well. So. You know, maybe an order then just becomes an invoice or, you know, they realize that they're, they're using that term wrong or whatever. So when that happens, do you guys actually change the, say, the, the database tables or the the entity framework classes? Uh, do you guys change things all along the stack or do you just keep it inconsistent? Yeah, so that's there's an assumption there, which is like the business actually knows what they're talking about or knows what they're doing, <laughs> which, I mean, does anyone really? <laughs> mm. Probably not. And so I often find that like there's a there's a discovery there's a mutual kind of discovery process that happens as we're building software for our business. The one we have to kind of decide you know, how much of their reality do we actually model and build in our software because we're not trying to model our software down to the I don't know to the quark level of what happens in the real world. We have to distill it down and kind of dumb it down to what you know should actually be built. But we also know that. We, we won't know everything up front. And so we kind of take our best guess at first. We, we have to understand and kind of accept as a group, both from the business and technical side, that we're not going to get it right the first time. And we have to be able to change our software over time to be able to incorporate these new discoveries. And if our software and systems make an assumption that these things won't change, then it kind of forces us to try to get it all right up front, which is never possible. So what I've been doing a lot more late, lately is trying to optimize for change to say, you know, we're not going to get it right the first time. 
So let's not even try. Well, let's, let's not try. Let's let's not spend all of our time trying to get it perfect. Let's just get it to the best of understanding and then optimize our systems and tools and code to be able to change over time so that as we get more information or as the, even like as the software shapes the processes and the processes shape the software, we're able to shape and mold it over time to be able to get to the system that the end user truly needs. What I've ran into a lot is is where you're at the beginning of a project and all the specifications are not well-defined. They're very vague. The customer is not sure what they want. They haven't you know, really gone all the way through things. And it just changes rapidly, especially in the early phases as they go, well, let's, let's do it this way. And then two days later, oh, no, I thought about it. We're not going to do it that way. Or maybe three weeks later, they come back and say, no, we changed our mind. So exactly you know, this refactoring of all this stuff, you have to really plan for that and expect it. So the the subtitle, I guess what it's like, you know, domain-driven design, the book title is domain-driven design, colon, tackling complexity in art of software. So you're like, okay, yes, we, I know complexity when I see it. And so I've seen a lot of legacy systems where like, oh, there's the complexity. But if I'm building a new system, it's not obvious from the beginning where that complexity is going to show up. And mm. so that's... That's really where, from a software perspective, like refactoring comes into play. So instead of trying to predict exactly where this complexity is going to show up, let's just say, let's just do it the the simplest thing that could possibly work first. And then as software needs to change over time, that's when we start to use our, our I say standard, but it's not so standard, but using well-defined refactoring techniques so that as we have to change code, we are refactoring our code towards a domain-driven or a domain model as we see the behavior get more complex over time. So instead of having like, I don't know, I've, I've seen the different kind of sample projects and applications of DDD over time. And like, you look at those, like, those are so complex and it can handle anything that throws at it. But a lot of times my systems aren't uniformly complex. It's like I have pockets of complexity. Most of it's pretty simple, but some of it is pretty complex. I don't want to have the hardest solution for every problem. I want to be able to tailor each solution to the problem. But the way we get there is through refactoring techniques. So that's this my idea of like this, instead of, instead of trying to, out of the gate, build the most complex solution that can handle anything, is to say, let's we have, a, we have a bunch of tools in our tool belt and as we encounter complex problems, especially over time, then we will refactor our solutions towards being able to handle that complexity, but not before we understand that complexity exists. I think it's a very developer thing to over-engineer over something. Um, <laughs> so, what are some of those, right? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So, what are some of those strategies then for, for refactoring? Well, that's a funny thing. So, I mean, a lot, a lot of ones I use with my teams are. Well, there's a couple of great books out there. One is the Fowler book, the Fowler refactoring book. I first read that straight out of college. It was like a seminal book for me that just shaped my whole career because I didn't know what the hell I was doing. I didn't graduate with a CS degree. So I didn't know really like what good code or bad code was. So I had to find something and refactoring book was it. And so that one, that book describes refactoring not as a catalog of like, here's a checkbox or, you know, here's a checklist of like, do all these things. Instead of approaches as saying, here are specific kind of problems or code smells you may encounter. And here are some possible ways you can change your code safely 
to be able to address those problems you might see in your code. And those are the refactorings. And so I, I use those a lot, which are just, I look at the code smells in my code, and then I will apply refactorings. But the way I will apply, apply the refactorings is towards a direction of this idea of a, of a behavioral domain model. And that is one of the ideas that came out of the domain-driven design book, is this idea that you have, it's very a very object-oriented, but it's this idea that you have these types or classes that contain both behavior and the data of your domain. So if you have something like, I don't know, an invoice, the invoice contains the information about the invoice, as well as the behavior associated with that invoice in one type or class. But we don't necessarily know where that behavior should go up front. So if we just kind of hard code it in our application, refactoring is what then pushes that behavior down into our, our domain model, if you will, that encapsulates that data and that behavior. So that's what I try to do with my refactoring is, is have a, with domain-driven design is having a direction towards pushing that behavior into a domain model. It's easier, I mean, it's more fun to see, I guess, than to talk about, <laughs> but a lot of the tooling that we have is able to support these kinds of activities. What we, the, the real big difference is like Visual Studio and code support all these kinds of refactorings. But I don't just do those refactorings by themselves. I do them like towards the direction of, can I push this down into my uh, business objects away from the kind of top level application layer, where whether it's controllers or whatever it might be, to push that behavior down into these, these kind of business objects. And a big difference between like a, I don't know, a typical way I've seen people done is everything always goes down into the the, like they have these very strict hierarchies of saying like business logic must go in these libraries over here and infrastructure must go over here. Let's well, if you have this very strict separation of that code, it can be very difficult to to kind of unwind it and put it in the place it's supposed to be. So that's why I on on our teams I just say just hard code it at first and wait for the behavior to reveal itself, and then then you can kind of take that step back and say okay where should this where should this go. Based on all the things it's doing, because there's never there's never a, a cookie cutter way of doing this, you take that step back, you look at what's going on, and you say, okay, this should go over there, this should go over there, and this should go over there. I mean, it's not unlike you know, cleaning out the junk drawer. You kind of throw everything down. You're like, okay, this is accumulating enough junk over time. Where should this go? So you don't you you kind of arrive at an organizational structure as opposed to trying to have a very strict separation up front, which may lead you on the wrong path nine times out of ten. Would you be um, suggesting, because yeah, you raised that point about yeah, not putting in all of the different types of, like having a folder for views, different for folder for object models and all that stuff. Um, would you would you suggest putting it, everything in like a feature folder? Oh, the main yeah. Folder? Yeah, exactly. So one thing I've, I've often seen is like, this is how I started out, by the way. So I can only, I'm criticizing the things I've already done in the past, <laughs> which is like, I have a, a business logic project where that's supposed to hold all the quote business logic. I have an infrastructure project, which is all the infrastructure, a data access layer project and a UI project as well. And then based on the code I'm supposed to write, I'm like, okay, I have to write code here. 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 And it could be, it's, it's tempting to think that all of your code is going to fit neatly into these different buckets of these kind of layered buckets. Um, but in practice, I found it's, it's never that clean. It's never that simple. It's never that obvious that these, this set of logic is just going to belong one place or the other. So that's why like, this idea of like the, the, you know, putting things in feature folders is to say, let's, let's isolate the code that we need to do for some specific feature or story by itself 
And that, that code does everything it needs to do to satisfy that story. But once that code is done, that's when we take a step back and say, okay, what, what is going on here? Where, you know, what are the different behaviors and responsibilities and where should it go? And don't try to decide up front, like wait until after you write the code until you decide you know, where it should go, what it should look like, what it, sh- what it should be. Okay, so after you write the code, would you then, would you then refactor it or do you keep it all in um? Yeah, uh, I folders? mean, <laughs> that's the, uh, I guess we're all doing TDD, right? Allegedly, like mm-hmm. the red, green refactor, I guess. So yeah, we 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 should we might refactor the code, but it's not necess- it's not required because I I would only refactor the code if it if it exhibited those code smells that I learned in from the refactoring book. So it was the method too long. Is it is it dealing with mm. another object? Is it and those are the two big ones really. It's like is the method too long? Okay, make it smaller. Well, how do you make it smaller? Well, pull this out and put it over there. Pull this out and put it over there. Or if you have a set of code that's dealing with a lot of data from some other object, what well, can you take the behavior that's dealing with that data and put it over in that other object? But that other object just happens to be your domain model. And so that's where the domain-driven refactoring comes in. Is like, I am refactoring, but pushing and toward the direction of the domain model as opposed to just other procedural code inside my application. So the refactoring step is the first uh, like a inspection step. Like You need to inspect your code to see does it need to be refactored? And it might not be. And that's okay. I, I, I'm I okay with like a simple method. It's just, just all the things. Maybe it crosses layers, like does data access and calls an API. But like if it, if it fits on a page, okay. Can I test it? Yes or no? Okay. If I check all those boxes, then let's move on. But if I need to change it in the future and it gets longer, okay, then maybe you refactor it. But if it doesn't exhibit those code smells, then... No need to do anything. Just just let it live <laughs> by itself. If it's not broke, don't fix it. Yeah, exactly. You know, it's funny as we folks move more and more towards like, you know, serverless kind of things, all of those kind of practices of, you know, like you need repositories, you need interfaces. If you go to serverless, like you're already in a, you know, everything fits in a method anyway. And so you don't really need to do a lot of those other things. That's kind of my next iteration of all this is, you know, what, is, what does this all start to mean? in the serverless land, when mm. you deploy a function, you don't deploy a system or an application. That might be a whole <laughs> other discussion. Well, we'll have to have you back on sometime. You know, that was great. Mm. Nice to have you. Yeah, thanks for having me. Is there, is there more things that you wanted to uh, cover on that or are, you think we're good? Oh, no, I don't think so. So we can provide links, of course, to the Martin Fowler Refactoring book. I just I can't sing its praises enough. But there's also another great book when things get too complex for that book, which which does happen. My favorite patterns book is a book called Refactoring to Patterns. So instead of treating patterns as a checklist, it actually treats design patterns as a way of addressing code smells. So if your code gets too complex for like the kind of small refactorings of the refactoring book, the refactoring to pattern says, okay, you can replace this conditional with strategy pattern as opposed to just a switch statement or something like that. It's another, like kind of the next level of refactorings past the standard refactoring book. Those two, like I can't tell you how much those has had an impact on my, the way I code today. So just absolutely fantastic to go through. So we should just give a, a, a big link to just the Martin Fowler. <laughs> yeah, exactly, exactly. Cool. All right. I think we should move on to picks. Hey, folks, if you love this podcast and would like to support the show, or if you wish you could listen without the sponsorship messages, then you're in luck. We're setting up new premium podcast feeds where you can get all of the episodes released after Christmas 2020 without the ads. 
Signing up will help us pay for editing and production, and you can go sign up at devchat.tv slash premium. Are you ready? Why? You have a pick? Sure. Should I go? Yeah. Yep. Go ahead. So today's pick, so I've been doing a lot of kind of Office 365 and Power Platform development at work, and I've kind of been like trying to find just some way to learn about it, I guess, for free. Because you know, all this stuff is on the cloud. Um, and I actually found this thing called the Microsoft 365 dev program. I don't know why it's so hard to find, actually. It took me a while to find it. But it's really good. It's um, it's something that gives you, like, basically a free, 25 free E5 licenses and your own Azure tenant for dev purposes. And, yeah, so you can just you can just sign up. It only takes a couple of minutes. And then you get your own Azure tenant with, like, you know, Exchange Online and, you know, Microsoft Teams and, you know, Plow platform dynamics and all that stuff and and then yeah you can start messing around with it so i found that really useful cool how about you jimmy what's your pick oh you know what you mentioned power what was the power platform power platform so i actually do a bit with power apps and i i love it actually even though i do like complex software power apps is fantastic for just these things that i want to be able to automate for myself and my team Mm. (laughs) that like i i've got an api somewhere i want to be able to do something so like I created a power app for our team to be able to log time with our mobile app because we didn't our time entry software doesn't have a mobile app but has an API. So I created like within a day like a cross-platform mobile app using power apps to be able to log our time and it was actually super super simple to do. So we're never too big for these these uh you know like some folks kind of poo-poo these kind of office applications, but I swear, man, like these things could really, <laughs> really yeah, like not everything needs like file new project. There's a lot of great tools <laughs> out there and power ups. I'm like, man, this is like it's functional reactive programming. It's 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 crazy, but it, it's really great. So anyway, it's yeah, de- power ups. <laughs> yeah, it's definitely something new, but yeah, it is it is really good for I guess in a corporate environment, people you know, not. Not every workplace has a bunch of hardcore programmers. Was that your pick? Yeah, yeah that, was that was my pick. pick. <laughs> oh, no, so your, that was your pick as well. Yeah, my pick too. Yeah, power up. <laughs> okay, yeah, great. Yeah. All right, got it. So my pick this week is actually going to be fiber internet. So I just got fiber internet about two weeks ago, and it's just awesome. You is know, that the Google one? The, um, no, this is just this is a, a local company. It used to be a telephone company in the area, and some other company bought them out, and they just started laying fiber throughout the town that I live in. And, you know, the town that I live in is small. I mean, we got like 25, maybe 30,000 people in the whole town. And half of those are college students. And they're working on pretty much covering the whole town. So it's like, wow, that's that's cool that they're in this small area. And I get fiber internet. So I now get uh, one gig (sighs) down, one gig down, and one gig up. And and, uh, yeah, it's just nice. It's And the latency is very small. So if you're a gamer, it's awesome. So if you do have that option to get, you know, fiber in it, get it. Because I had cable before and I'm paying less now for fiber for five times the download speed and 10, 100. Okay, enough bragging. 100 times, 100 times the upload speed, man. Yeah. So sorry for those that, that don't, <laughs> they can't get it yet, but it's nice. How and much do you guys pay for internet in America? I, yeah. And it, is it like it an unlimited thing or is it a... It varies a lot depending on the company that you're going through, but... It's like bundles and all sorts. I don't even know because it's yes. all together. So for, for my fiber internet, for the first year, I pay $60 a month. Okay, and bad. then after a year, it goes to $80 a month. So that's... You know, that's just keep going up from there because they got you. <laughs> they got you. Well, 
that's the nice thing. It's, it's actually competition now because they do have the cable company and I'm sure the cable company is going to be up in their speeds to compete, but you know, fiber is just fiber. So it's nice. And then I've got to upgrade all my wireless equipment to Wi-Fi 6 and do all that. So I, so all the Wi-Fi stuff is coming down fast because usually most people, their Wi-Fi speeds are much faster than what your, your mm-hmm. internet speed is. But now you're getting up to a gig and then you sometimes you have problems with distance from your your Wi-Fi router and things like that. You're not getting close. So yeah. So you might get a new what, router, wouldn't it? Yeah. Good you know, fuel band router. Yeah, I might get a new mesh router and make sure it's Wi-Fi 6 so it's super fast. And then I talked to the guy when he installed it and he said, eventually I could go up to, I mean, it's capable of doing like six gigs and probably even faster than it at some point. They don't offer that speed right now unless maybe you like your business, but uh, one gig is just, I used to be on a local network that was 100 meg or one gig speed since like, now I'm doing that speed over the internet. It's awesome. <laughs> Sorry, Jimmy. <laughs> That's enough of that. <laughs> All right. So, uh, Jimmy, if people have questions and want to reach out to you, what's the best way? Uh, Twitter's probably the best. My DMs are open. So, at Jay Bogard, you can hit me up there. Okay. What's next for you? What do you got? What are you, you going to do? Any uh, conferences or speeches or? Yeah, I'm still scheduled to be at Kansas City Dev- De- Development Conference next month in, uh, well, Kansas City, of course. Actually, be talking about domain-driven refactoring there. And then I think that's about it for a while because it's getting to that kind of holiday season here. So, <laughs> Have they got the, the conferences back on there now, though? Like the, the physical conferences now back in, in America? The ones that are contractually beholden and aren't commercial, yes. Because if they don't have it, the organizers will be out like a mortgage worth of money. All right, cool. <laughs> <laughs> it's not my money, so if they will, well, mm. but I, I want to... I don't want them to go out because I want to see conferences keep on going. So I like conferences. And if our listeners want to reach out and get in touch with the show, we'd love to hear from you. We'd like to uh, get your feedback. Let, let us know how we can do better. You can reach me on Twitter. I am at .NET Superhero. I'm doing Caleb. Yeah, that's what you're trying. Okay. Thanks, Jimmy. Thanks, Y. We'll catch everybody on the next episode of Adventures in .NET. See ya. Bye, all. Bandwidth for this segment is provided by Cashfly, the world's fastest CDN. Deliver your content fast with Cashfly. Visit C-A-C-H-E-F-L-Y.com to learn more.